Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tracy. Just a quick bit of housekeeping off the back of the, the ministry we've just had. If you do want to get baptized next week, if you've decided that, um, come to Founders after the service. So I'm running some people through. We have just a little document that just explains uh, what we believe about baptism here at Emmaus that we want to take everybody through. So if you do want to get baptized next week, it's a great opportunity. Come along to Founders um, after the service or just come and grab me at the front. And in terms of joining the church family, the other big thing that we encourage people to do is to join a collective. And the great news is we've got about three new collectives starting in Guildford um, in September. um, And we may even have more by then. Um, And so this is also a great time. Um, Most of them take a little break through the summer, but it's a great time to express your interest. And we'd love to get you connected in with a collective, as Pete said. They really are the primary kind of support network that we have um, here in Emmaus. And so, yeah, just encourage you to really think about either of those two things. And thank you so much, Tracy, for reading uh, today's passage. There's something a bit wild in there. Did you notice that bit where Jesus said, it's for your good that I'm going away? That's a bit of a head melt, isn't it? Who would, who would trade their current experience of the Holy Spirit in their life for a sit-down, coffee, one-on-one with the creator of the universe? Anybody? Any hands? So it seems strange, right? It's, it's quite an unusual thing for Jesus to say. It's for your good that I'm going to go away and send this new character into the story that we don't know yet. It's strange. And so what I want to do today is look at, well, why did Jesus say that? 
And um, this is the final teaching in our Come Holy Spirit series. It's been amazing. I've really enjoyed going through this series. We had uh, Jonathan Helzer on Pentecost um, share this beautiful message about the Spirit being the gift of the Father. We had Pete Hughes doing this wonderful overview of who the Holy Spirit is and looking at some of the big picture stuff of the Spirit's role in, in the recreation of all things, the redemption of all things. Um, we had Hannah and Pete do a week each on the fruit of the Spirit from a very different, very helpful angle. I know many of you loved those two messages. And last week, Bill gave a great, encouraging message on the gifts of the Spirit. And so it's my job today to kind of um, tie it all together. And uh, we had originally planned to do a second week on the gifts of the Spirit, but Adam gave me sort of carte blanche to, to sort of finish the series um, as I wished. And so I'm going to do something a little different today. And I think it's been really helpful. Sometimes our thinking and our language about the Holy Spirit can be a bit vague, right? God the Father, God the Son, we, we know what fathers and sons are. And of course, those are metaphors. Those are sort of, it's, a, it's an analogy, but it gives us a frame of reference, right? But it's not called the Holy Uncle. It's called the Holy Spirit. And spirit is a bit of a different concept for us to get our head around. And, and one of the primary metaphors the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit is breath, right? And breath is a hard thing to grasp. So it's, I think it's been really interesting to go through this series and start to just develop some of our thinking and the way that we engage with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, it is all about engagement with the Holy Spirit. So when Adam um, asked me to, to do this talk, I'd actually been, I'd been away on holiday for a week. Um, and I decided that week, for no reason in particular, to read the Gospel of John. And so I'd spent that week reading, I think, about five or six chapters a day to try and get it done in the course of four days. And it just the reason I picked, I hadn't gone through John in a long time, but I really love the Gospel of John. You know, in the beginning was the word, like John is such a beautiful uh, piece of literature and it's such a powerful um, book of the Bible. And I hadn't just come sort of and sat and read through it in quite a long time, but I've done quite a lot on Matthew, Mark, Luke in recent years. And I was struck as I was reading John about all that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. And that's why I wanted to kind of take that angle on it today. Now, I've got a very um, sort of, I'm going to say it's a slightly uh, crude way of, of portraying the synoptic gospels, but there's a picture going to come up. And occasionally, so, so that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels in a sense because they sort of sync up. There's this sense in which they're all just slightly different angles on kind of the same narrative. They're a bit more linear. They're very fast moving. So they can feel a little bit like you're, you know, kayaking down a river. It's, it's, all, it's kind of carrying you. Start Apart from that genealogy at the start of Matthew. But... The rest of it, Mark in particular, like it uses this word immediately lots and it's a bit like an action movie and it just keeps you moving the whole time. And that's wonderful. But John's gospel is actually really, really different. And this is helpful to know when you come to read a book of the Bible to get some of that idea of, you know, what, what are some of the main features of this book and have those in the back of your head. And John's gospel is much more like canoeing on a still lake. That's actually a picture of me canoeing in Newfoundland quite a long time ago survived. Um, and John's gospel invites you just by the way that it is written to go slowly. It's very difficult. I actually found this as I was reading. It's very difficult to read it and to sort of get through it. You have to really, really sort of sit and, you know, what, what's going on here? So for example, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, a lot of what Jesus says, it's very, it sort of flows logically. A lot of it's quite short. There's a lot of parables. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's sort of short little sections on different topics. It's quite, you know, you can kind of take it and and work through it that way. John's not like that. And there's quite long sort of conversation um, in John. And it's almost like Jesus is inviting you into just the mystery of who he is. You have to read it a whole bunch of times. And even after that, you still come away with lots of questions. 
And so I just, I really enjoyed this. And um, today's passage, which I've chosen to, to, to speak on, is from what's called the Farewell Discourse. So chapters 14 through 17 of John are all part of Jesus' sort of final conversation that he has with the disciples um, on that night. And it's a really challenging kind of passage to get through. There's a lot of conversation. It's the longest conversation of Jesus's that we have. It features the longest prayer of Jesus's that we have in John 17. And it's a complex um, thing. And it's, it's sort of circular. Jesus says the same thing. There's these kind of motifs that repeat. And the main two things that he seems to want to get across is that he is leaving and that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. So he refers to his going back to the Father about 15 times over the course of those chapters. And the Holy Spirit is referred to in various ways about 26 times. And so you come away from reading the farewell discourse with this really strong sense that Jesus is going back to the Father and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. That's almost like I would say the two main things you can come away with. And there's, of course, lots and lots else in it. And, and he keeps coming back to these themes and it's almost like he's kind of inviting us. He's given us like a peek behind the curtain into the mystery of the life of the Trinity. And it's, as well, I think it's really important to note that John, I think, is trying to get across to us in the way that he writes how intimately connected the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit are, how incredibly uh, woven together they are. And so this passage, this particular um, little section is the culmination really of Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the reasons that I wanted to go with this angle is that we've talked about the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And often in, um, you know, the, the sort of post-Pentecostal world that, you know, the Pentecostal movement that began. And that's a wonderful thing because there's this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And actually for some centuries in the early church, the Holy Spirit was often completely disregarded, even by some of our greatest theologians. They were so busy trying to work out the mystery of who Jesus was and how that worked, that the Holy Spirit sometimes was completely overlooked. And so I'm so grateful that we live in an age of the church where we have a really strong appreciation for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But occasionally, I feel like we can be in danger of privatizing the Holy Spirit, and it becomes... Um, too much about us receiving and us being filled and us sort of getting the fruit of the spirit. And it can become a very individual thing, which again is not surprising because everything in our world and our culture swerves to sort of individual, um, sort of putting the priority on the individual. But Jesus here, when he is, these verses, right, he's explaining why it's better that he leaves and that the spirit comes. He doesn't really go on that angle. He gives us this much more cosmic, um, almost universal element to what the Holy Spirit is going to do in the world once he goes back to the Father. So let me just read um, those sort of verses 8 to 11 again, and then we'll, we'll get into the passage. When he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin, because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So that's the reason that Jesus initially gives for why it's better that he leaves and that the Spirit comes. Now, these um, four verses are actually notoriously tricky to interpret, and there's been a lot of disagreement over what Jesus means. Who feels like it's crystal clear, having read that, even though Jesus explains himself, see how he goes through and explains himself? Does anybody feel like they know exactly what he means? 
It's still, it's still a little bit tricky to kind of get what, where it's going. And in fact, um, I came across something that said, Augustine, explained, he sort of just sort of put these verses aside as being too difficult, didn't offer an interpretation. And Thomas Aquinas, so that's the two sort of greatest theologians, you could argue, in the history of the church, he didn't offer his own interpretation for these verses. He just sort of restated what everybody else had already said. So I'm going to have a stab. I've done my reading. Um, and part of the difficulty here is that the, the word that we've translated in, I think this is the NIV, prove wrong about that that word is alentio. It's a Greek word, and it has multiple possible translations. One of them could be to convict or to convince. It could be to bring to light or to expose. And it can also be translated as correct or punish. Those sort of three quite different angles. And throughout the New Testament, that word comes up and is, is translated often in those different ways, depending on the context. I think the, the latter one, the, the sort of correct punishment, can be ruled out in this particular passage because punishment is actually not implied in these verses. Convict isn't quite right because if I feel convicted about something, it implies that I have recognized that I am in the wrong. And yet earlier in John, I think it's in um, John 14, um, Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Spirit. Even earlier in John, John 3, 19, it says Jesus comes into the world as the light, and yet the world still chooses darkness. So there is this sense in which the, the world will always choose darkness. And so the world, even though it could be shown to be in the wrong, may not actually feel convicted. Does that make sense? So if we use the word convicted, it would have to be more in the sense of a trial where someone is found to be guilty, even if they don't agree with the verdict. I like the bring to light or to expose translation, but it doesn't make perfect sense. For, you have to find a word that sits with sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so that's why I think this idea, this more general one around proving the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment works well. So how does Jesus explain these things about sin? Um, because people do not believe in me. So Jesus is not here talking about every individual act of sin. He's talking about really what you could call the meta-sin, right, of rejecting Jesus, of not believing in him. And so this is, this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bring to light, expose, convict where Jesus has not been accepted. And of course, the classic biblical example of the Holy Spirit doing this is in Acts 2, when Peter preaches and he tells the, the audience assembled, many of whom had been, you know, part of the, the group that had persecuted Jesus, and, and they become convicted by the Holy Spirit that, oh no, this, this was in fact the Son of God. And they say, what did they say? They say, they were cut to the heart. That's the phrase that Acts use, they were cut to the heart. And so we see already right at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit um, proving the world wrong about sin. Um, and I think, you know, whilst it is referring here to that medicine, I think we also see how the Holy Spirit works in convincing us of light and darkness. And I think if you have the Spirit of God inside you, it becomes easier to know what is light and what is darkness. And I, I was speaking to someone this week, um, and I'll keep this as anonymous as I can, but they're, they're facing this situation where... Um, they have a landlord and this person um, is not a Christian. And long story short, this person has dealt just really, really badly with them and is, is, is sort of basically getting them out of there and um, bringing a competitor in. This is in a professional context. And it just became really clear to me, you know, someone who has the spirit of God inside them. Now, they may still act in the wrong, but they will know 
that what they are doing is wrong. And I actually became convinced this guy doesn't actually have any frame of reference for what is light and darkness here. And he is acting in a way that is unjust. And so when we have the spirit of God inside of us and we do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it becomes harder and harder for us to ignore that because the spirit is inside us. Okay, secondly, Jesus says that the spirit will prove the world wrong about righteousness. And then it's this kind of, cryptic, like, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no more. Like, what's he saying here? Well, I think simply because I'm going to the Father is him saying because he's going to be glorified, he's going to be crucified and resurrected and go back to the Father. And so the people who had prosecuted Jesus, the Jewish authorities, they actually thought that they were performing a righteous act. It is better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. That's John eleven fifty. And so they thought they were being righteous. And actually the word righteous here can also be translated as justice. They thought they were being just, and yet on the cross, the whole thing is reversed and Jesus is revealed to be the righteous one of God. And so again, the Holy Spirit shows us that where we think in the world that things are righteous or just, the kingdom doesn't work that way. And finally, about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And so Jesus had been subject to a legal trial he was being judged. There was a judgment being conferred onto Jesus by those that wanted to get rid of him. But again, on the cross, the rules are reversed. And in his death on the cross and his glorification subsequently, Jesus is shown to be in the right and the world and its darkness becomes the, the thing that is judged, exposed for what it really is. Jesus, who has been rejected, is instead glorified and he becomes the world's chief judge he is the one that has the right to do that and of course the the prince of this world the devil and the dominion of darkness still have influence of course we know that but they are now on notice they have been exposed for what they are the holy spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin righteousness and judgment in doing each of these things we see the Spirit continuing the work that Jesus had already done. This is what Jesus did in his ministry on the earth. He went about proving the world wrong about sin, about righteousness and judgment. And often it's in ways that we don't expect. And often it was the religious leaders that he was proving to be in the wrong, bringing to light the darkness, exposing the spiritual and moral bankruptcy of the world. And the Spirit is the vital agent for the church to do this. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote many well-known works, Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, Screwtip Letters, which you'll all know about. But he also wrote a thing called the Space Trilogy, three wonderful books. Has anyone read the Space Trilogy? A few hands, but they're definitely among his lesser known works. You can go ahead and put that picture of the man himself up there. I couldn't find a good picture, like sort of illustration of the thing that I'm about to talk about. So I thought I'd just show you this lovely picture of him sitting at his desk, a few pipes, a few books. Looks very happy. And uh, in the Space Trilogy, the main character is an Englishman called Ransom. And I think he's a philologist, like a professor. And uh, long story short, he gets taken up into space and it's a whole thing and I'm not going to do it justice. But um, in this world, he comes across these creatures called Eldils. And they're like 10 feet tall 
and they're kind of like made of light and they're kind of a little effervescent and um, you know, really tall and towering over him. I think the closest sort of analogy that we could use is angels. They're a bit like that, you know, creatures of this kind of other realm. So he comes across the Eldils and he meets them first in space in the sort of planet that they live and they're these creatures. And then later in the story, he actually has some Eldils come and visit him on Earth. But he notices something really interesting. On Earth, the Eldils aren't standing upright. They're standing at a slight tilt. I think it's described as being about 10 degrees off in the book. And he puzzles over this. Why, why, do they, why are they not standing up straight? This is really strange. And then it occurs to him, and this is a beautiful way that C.S. Lewis uses this, and he's always <laughs> using analogies and metaphors. Ransom realizes that it's the earth that's off. The earth itself is off axis. The Eldils are the ones that are on true vertical. And everything on planet earth is slightly skewed. And so this is the mission of the church. And it's appropriate that we talk today about the church. And uh, of course, the spirit is involved in the personal regeneration that each of us experiences as followers of Jesus that fills us with fruit to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus. But there is this other element to the ministry of the spirit. Possibly even you could say the primary function of the Holy Spirit is to be a witness in the world of the, the resurrected savior Jesus Christ. And so it's the mission of the church in the power of the spirit, always in the power of the spirit to show the world what true vertical really is, to be the voice that gives an honest assessment of the way things really are. And I obviously have to name the fact that Christians don't always agree on what true vertical might be in a given situation. And of course, we can all think of multiple topics and I'm sure even in our own lives and businesses, we come across sort of dilemmas, ethical and moral, where Christians will come to different conclusions about the way to act. And that's a whole other thing, but I think it's important to name that. And uh, actually later on in, in this same passage, Jesus says that the, uh, the spirit will guide us into all truth. And I think there's just an element here where we have to just constantly be checking ourselves, our own motives examining our own hearts when we come to make these kind of decisions? Are we earnestly seeking the spirit of God and not thinking in our own terms? Where, are we, where have we been influenced by our background or our culture, the world that we're in? How do we find what true vertical really is in the kingdom of God? And so that slight um, sort of uh, complication <laughs> aside, we do live in a world that is really confusing we live in a really pluralistic time. Ethical absolutes are dismissed. People wish to determine for themselves what is right or what is wrong, often inconsistently, you'll notice. The church, that is each of us through the spirit, must prove the world wrong about the true character of sin, the true meaning of righteousness, the true place of judgment. This might all sound a little heavy, perhaps even a little bit old school, but we must remember the manner in which we are to go about doing this, proving the world wrong. We must do this filled with the Holy Spirit, confronting things with peace, with love, with joy, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with gentleness, with faithfulness and self-control. We do this by using the gifts given to us by the Spirit, the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous power, prophecy, discernment, and glorifying God through the use of tongues and interpreting them.
we don't confront the world the way the world likes to be confronted with force, right? And with uh, violence even, right? The world operates in a very, very specific way. And that is not how the kingdom of God operates. And so where it can sound intense, like confronting the world about sin and righteousness and judgment, we have to remember that with the spirit inside of us, there is a certain manner in which we go about doing those things. And also to bear in mind the goal for which we do these things. We know in First Timothy 2 that God desires for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the spirit is, of course, referred to in the Bible sometimes as the spirit of truth. And so it's through this holy confrontation with the world, through showing light from darkness, that the human heart can be summoned to repentance and ultimately offered the redemption that each and every one of us needs. Kingdom confrontation is not the same as worldly confrontation. And so that's it. That's what I've got. That's how I wanted to pull this series together.